Chapter 11 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2 by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Clara Barton at Sherborne. It will be well at this point to make plain three points which were not clearly understood at the outset and have sometimes been misunderstood since. The first is that Clara Barton, in establishing the Red Cross in America, was not seeking primarily to provide a place for herself. At this period she had three homes, and money enough to support herself comfortably in any one of them. We have an interesting look into the Dansville home in a letter of her brother David to his daughter, Ida Barton Richius. He was ill, and she, not yet recovered from her own illness, took him in and nursed him back to health. He wrote, Dansville, June 13, 1880. Clara's friends met us at the cars and rendered all necessary assistance. I was very weak and tired. Clara lives in a very splendid old mansion, in a location unsurpassed, and a grand view of all the surroundings. Her house is filled with almost everything that adds to health, comfort, and happiness. Clara is very attentive to me. I think it came rather hard on her the first part of the time. Perhaps she will stand it a little better now that I am better and can possibly assist her a little. I have been gradually gaining since I arrived, considering how miserable I was when I came. The living here agrees with me exceedingly well. We have plenty of good fresh milk, fresh graham bread from the bakery, fresh graham meal to make puddings, butter, cheese, applesauce, any kind of canned fruit we choose, which generally constitutes our breakfast. For dinner, we have meat, fish, beans, potatoes, and things of that kind. For supper, we have bread, butter, tea or coffee, cheese, and fruit of any kind. This is the way we live, and I enjoy it much. Clara has nearly all sorts of canned fruit in abundance, but what is best of all is plenty of nice fresh apples, which I go into without mercy. Clara Barton would have smiled a little at her brother's arrangement of her menus. She probably would have said that she had a simple breakfast of graham bread, fresh butter and fruit, a hearty midday meal of meat or fish and vegetables, and a light supper of bread, butter, cheese and fruit, with abundance of sweet milk and an unlimited supply of good red apples. This was the kind of home which Clara Barton left when she went to Washington to plead for the Red Cross. She often longed for it and thought of going back there. Yet the purpose which had taken her to Dansville had been accomplished in her restored health. There was no important work for her to do there or at Oxford. She could have a roof and red apples in either place, but she wanted to be promoting what had become the great object in life for her, 
that was what brought her back to washington if in all the weary months when she was fighting her lonely battles for the red cross it ever occurred to her that this organization would give to her a life position or bring to her either money or other emoluments there is no hint of it in her diaries so far as one may judge from these intimate self-revelations her purpose was as genuinely altruistic as human nature is capable of becoming nor is there any indication that she supposed that this would bring her additional honor she already had more honors of certain desirable kinds than any other woman in america her civil war record was known throughout the nation the lecture platform offered her an inviting and remunerative invitation to return if she cared to take it up she had brought back with her from europe official decorations such as royalty neither before nor since has ever bestowed upon an american woman secretary blaine inquired about these with interest one day and a few days later she handed three of them to his secretary with the following letter. Washington, D.C., October 31, 1881. To the Honorable Secretary of State, Washington, D.C., Dear Mr. Blaine, After the words unintentionally dropped at the interview so kindly granted me on Saturday, it occurs to me, that it is perhaps the suitable thing for me to do, possibly a duty, to explain to you, as the head of our foreign relations, my own connection in that direction. I will, with your kind permission, take the liberty to pass in, by the hand of your secretary, the accompanying decorations. The Iron Cross of Merit, issued to me in 1872, by the Emperor and Empress of Germany, on the occasion of the 75th birthday of the Emperor. The Gold Cross of Remembrance, presented to me by the Grand Duke and Grand Duchess of Baden at the close of the Franco-German War. The Red Cross of Geneva, brought to Strasbourg and placed upon my neck by the Grand Duchess of Baden, near whose court I suppose by courtesy I in a manner belong, as the winter of 1872 was past there, and I left with the faithful promise to return to Europe once in two years, and pass each alternate winter with her, a promise which circumstances alone have prevented me from keeping. The first four years after my return to America in 1873 were passed as a broken-down invalid, mainly confined to my room or bed. The four last, since on my feet, I have been held here by my efforts, and my promise given repeatedly abroad to plant the Red Cross on our own soil and hang its peaceful, humane flag beside our stars and stripes i am glad mr secretary that you have seen it as you have in the late celebration for you will be the better able it may be to comprehend and excuse my persistency 
except for this constant and exhaustive occupation i should have passed either of these last winters at karlsruhe but it has been sufficient to consume my entire time strength and spare means and must continue to do so until the treaty is disposed of and the societies of the red cross so indispensable to the effectiveness and utility of the treaty are understood by the people and measurably established throughout the country to this end i have at this moment in press a small work of a hundred or so pages explaining the entire subject its origin history and purposes and of which i have ordered five thousand copies for gratuitous circulation they will be ready at the opening of congress or before and i have four thoroughly formed societies one national in this city completed and incorporated one local in dansville new york one in the city of rochester new york for the county of monroe and one similarly organized in syracuse new york both rochester and syracuse are forming local town societies under them and all in the happy absence of war are using up their surplus energies on the burnt fields of michigan to which their agents have already taken thousands of dollars to the hungry and thousands of garments to the naked i must beg mr blaine that you do not misinterpret my motive in making this little revelation of foreign recognition if the incentive had been mere personal vanity i should probably have found a way to make the facts known short of a decade but it comes to me now that it is perhaps under the circumstances a kind of duty that i should report to you on foreign affairs begging your pardon for my too long letter i remain mr secretary with the most grateful respect very truly clara barton the next thing that should be kept clearly in mind is that she did not establish an organization dependent upon government appropriations in this respect her organization was quite unlike some of those that were hastily organized to oppose her at least one of these was organized with an eye keenly intent upon one form of then existing government service with which it might possibly be affiliated with an inviting prospect of salaried positions and official appointments when the treaty of geneva was ratified and not only the senate but house of representatives stood ready to do almost anything for clara barton many of her friends in congress assumed that the next step would be a request for a congressional appropriation to cover the administrative expense of the red cross organization to every such suggestion clara barton returned an emphatic negative this was her little creed announced at the outset and often reiterated the red cross means not national aid for the needs of the people, but the people's aid for the needs of the nation. She would not accept a salary, 
or permit any friends of hers in Congress to introduce a bill for her financial advantage. How keenly she felt the importance of establishing the Red Cross upon this basis, and how sensitive she was to the opposition which grew formidable just before the treaty was adopted, is shown in a letter of hers to her long-time friend Frances Willard, who wrote to ask the reason why she was not moving faster in her work for the relief of the people in the flooded district along the Mississippi. Washington, February 11, 1882. Dear Frances Willard, Yes, I did get your letter telling me about the state of things in Mississippi, and that all was lost there. I have no doubt but that it is the same the country through. It is hard and heavy and bitter. The shots of malice and detraction fall thick. But I must stand at the helm and steer my ship safely into port. The Treaty of Geneva must first be secured. I have but one passage to take it through, and that is lined thick on every side with guns manned by the society ladies of the capital of the nation. The Red Cross, a little stranger craft from a foreign land, bearing only the banner of peace and love, and her messages of world-wide mercy begging shelter and acceptance in our capacious harbor has chosen me for her pilot to bring her in besides these guns that open upon her on all sides she runs against the chains which have so long held her out fancied government defences of non-intervention self-isolation beware of entangling alliances washington's farewell address monroe doctrine apathy inertia, general ignorance, national conceit, national distrust, a desire to retain the old-time barbarous privileges of privateering and piracy, which we have hugged as a precious boon against every humane treaty since we began. All these my little ship has had to meet and breast and bear down before this new and personal attack was opened upon her so you see i cannot turn aside from my duties of a true pilot to contest a new foe i must bring my ship through the natural dangers and anchor it safely in port though it and i be riddled with shot i have thrown over all extra weight put on all sail muzzled my guns, put my poor, tired, wounded crew to the pumps, nailed the little flag to the mast, and so you see us without other word or sign, plunging through the surf, breaking down chain after chain, through the fire and smoke, making for the shore. Never a messenger of mercy met a more inhospitable welcome but the poor battered pilot has faith in the craft and faith in god and at no distant day in spite of all we shall throw out a sturdy old iron anchor to grapple with the reefs of the coast and run up a little pennant beside the cross treaty ratified 
after this we shall be freed from our national disgrace relieved from the charge and duties of safe conduct for our course and then if there is call for arbitration we will be ready the success of her work along the mississippi made it evident that she must continue the direction of the red cross but that did not by any means convince her that she was to give up everything else and stay in washington she began to look for something else to do and something that would take her far away from the seat of government she rather coveted than otherwise the opportunity to show without advertising the fact that she had other and visible means of support and that her work for the red cross was not undertaken for lack of other employment moreover it was expected that its organization would be kept simple and its work done promptly in times of emergency that was why almost immediately after the red cross had become an actual organization and she had been constituted its official head by presidential nomination and international appointment and all the opposing organizations had withered and died she was willing to accept a salaried position in work of another kind about this time she had a letter from governor butler of massachusetts he knew her well and had seen much of her work during the civil war out of a clear sky came his invitation to her commonwealth of massachusetts executive department boston january eighth eighteen eighty three my dear miss barton there is a vacancy in the office of superintendent of the woman's reformatory prison of massachusetts it wants a woman at once of executive ability and kind-heartedness with an honest love of the work of reformation and care of her living fellow-creatures how would that suit you the salary is not very large it is fifteen hundred dollars a year and house and expenses of living please let me hear from you at your very earliest convenience i am very truly yours benjamin f butler to miss clara barton dansville new york nothing could have surprised her more than this invitation and it was four months before she decided to accept it even then she accepted with the stipulation that she would need to close her service in time to attend the international convention of the red cross in vienna in the following year her acceptance of the position involved the giving of a bond of ten thousand dollars with her customary independence she declined to ask any one to sign her bond but deposited with the state treasurer of massachusetts ten thousand dollars of interest-bearing bonds and became her own guarantor prison work was something of which clara barton knew nothing and she did not bring to it any considerable number of theories as to how it ought to be performed in her first report rendered at the end of six months she took pains to give large credit to those who had preceded her 
she disclaimed for herself either knowledge or achievement a portion of this report will bear record here with only the little experience of six months you will readily concede that it cannot be considered my work it would be unjust arrogance in me to assume it the noble women and men who toiled for its existence the faithful tireless body of commissioners who have watched prayed and labored unpaid for it often unthanked since its first baby breath it cried aloud we the women of the old commonwealth and more than all perhaps the two grand women who have presided me in its charge are entitled to consider sherborne prison their work the strong brave-hearted woman mrs atkinson who first dared to lay her hand untried upon that mass of chaos and command order and law life and reformation to come out of it was braver than a general the peaceful skilful beloved dr mosier who had the womanly courage to follow her and strive and labor to shape still more perfectly the swelling yeasty mass of human sin and misery till like a wounded color-bearer she fell bravely praying some comrade to bear them on to victory these are the people whose work that prison is and in their name and theirs only let me speak of it a moment and commend it to your loving interest and tender care last may i found as i entered its great halls two hundred and thirty woman convicts it has at present two hundred and seventy five to two hundred and eighty woman convicts and with those who so kindly care for them make up a family of something over three hundred these convicts i am expected to feed clothe work and govern they in turn to be fed clothed to work and obey the most comprehensive and i believe correct report i could make would be that we all faithfully perform what is expected of us the manner in which it is accomplished and the causes which lead to the necessity for such accomplishment are then the remaining points of importance the causes are as various and widespread as the sins and mishaps which beset erring humanity but if you asked me what proportion i thought would be left after all the temptations of liquor and men were removed i should not require a large sheet on which to write it down sherborne reformatory is classed as a state's prison and is thus squared by the same rule of discipline as ordinary state prisons for the retention of state criminals and yet it is to be remembered that not a one-fourth part of these women are guilty of or convicted of any real crime simply offences drunkenness and unseemly appearance upon the streets and yet these poor hopeless misguided rum-wrecked women and night-walking girls are sentenced to the same servitude subjected to the same code of discipline 
and go out with the same brand of shame upon the brow, nay, far deeper than the clear-headed, cool, intelligent, calculating men of Concord, where every inmate is convicted of a crime. The sad conviction settles down upon me every day that the sole brains of the crime of the Commonwealth are in Concord. The wrecks they have made are in Sherborne. And in my dealing with these women, I cannot lose sight of this fact. They are more weak than wicked, often more sinned against than sinning. This, to my mind, invites a parental, maternal system of government, and to this they are all amenable. Even the most obstinate yields to a rule of kindness, firmly and steadily administered. The records of this period are necessarily meagre, yet there have come to the author unsought testimonials of the great work which Clara Barton accomplished while there. While she never criticized her predecessors, but gave them generous praise, she stood not at all on any precedent established by them. She changed the atmosphere of the place from an institution of punishment to one of instruction and character-building. One who visited the prison while she was there has told the author of Clara Barton's power over the incorrigible how women that were violent and untamable by the ordinary methods became docile under her direction. As for the younger women who were not hardened and were often more sinned against than sinning, they idolized her. She established two letter-boxes in the halls, one to receive letters addressed to herself. Any one of the three hundred inmates was at liberty to write to Miss Barton. A number of the letters which she received were preserved by her and have been read by her biographer. They were a pathetic group, some of them absurd in their requests, and others tragic in their appeal for help. The gratitude of others was quite beyond the poor power of expression possessed by these girls. In many instances these letters were followed by personal conferences very fruitful of good. The other box was for letters of complaint addressed to the board of managers. Any inmate was at liberty to write a letter and place it there, assured that it would go direct, and that neither Miss Barton nor any of her assistants would read it. The first box was in constant use the second scarcely ever contained a letter. This was work for which Clara Barton had no natural liking. It was very far from the type of work she would have chosen. She never supposed it to be a permanent position. She accepted it because she felt that her health was sufficiently assured to justify her in undertaking some definite responsibility and this was a place where she could go for a limited time and from it honorably retire she was glad of a definite position in some other work than the red cross yet one which did not compel her to resign her responsibilities in that organization 
she found time while at sherborne to attend a national gathering of philanthropic organizations in denver and deliver an address on the red cross and she continued general oversight of its affairs she retired from the work with no desire ever to see the inside of another prison but also with a deepened interest in all work of that character and with increased faith that in such work as everywhere kindness and an appeal to honor and self-respect were more effective than punishments which degrade and destroy hope she continued her work at sherborne a little longer than she intended because the term of governor butler was drawing to a close and he did not wish to make a temporary appointment she withdrew at the close of his term and the day of her departure was a day of mourning in the prison at sherborne a few months afterward an international conference was held at saratoga and she was invited to deliver an address on prison reform the notes of that address are preserved some steps in life are accounted unwise some foolish some foolhardy until the present hour perhaps the most foolhardy step i have ever been led to take was the temporary superintendence of a state prison for the management control and reformation of women though consenting however unwillingly to undertake a work of which i knew nothing and under such circumstances i did undertake it but good kind and loving friends in point of temerity and foolhardiness the effort of this present hour beggars that that i with literally no experience no knowledge of the subject with thoughts running always in other channels should in any way however tacitly have given consent to take my place at this desk this evening beside these gentlemen who embody in themselves the experimental knowledge of the world upon this subject and before this audience trained to thought the cultivated cream of the land is to me past human comprehension the lord directs let us obey in may eighteen eighty three after four months of combined importunity from the then governor general butler and all the people interested in and controlling the penal institutions of the state of massachusetts that i take the superintendency of sherborne reformatory prison and it was i believe the only point upon which the governor and the people ever did agree i decided to take it for six months i remained something longer i entered that prison feeling myself so ignorant of all that pertained to its line of work and methods and thought that it seemed to me positively wicked to waste my own time and that of the community and those who must come under me in the strengthless thoughtless vacancy of my attempted work i seemed to myself a kind of empty balloon at the end of eight months i went out of it with a burden of thoughts plans ways and means 
possible and impossible, under which my body could scarcely hold itself erect or my feet carry me away. I seemed more to myself like an already heavy-laden ship, which had met another in distress and taken on shipwrecked passengers and crew till her gunwales hugged the water and her laboring wheels wearily tugged for the land. So piled, so crisscrossed, so intricate, so vast, contradictory, perplexing, so vexed by customs, so hampered by foolish laws, so bound by mercenary ends, so fettered by political ambitions, aspirations, asperities, and jealousies, to say nothing of the immutable laws of natural descent as related to crime. So discouraging was all this to be faced from the latter half of a busy life that I wearily and gladly turned and laid the burden down on the hands of you skilled laborers and have mainly been content to feel and leave it there the subject of prison reform seems to me to be so vast and the methods by which it is to be attempted so varied that it can scarcely be touched in one talk the first question might be what is meant by prison reform and in what degree palliation or cure i well remember the one question which always confronted me from visitors at sherborne miss barton how is it do you really reform anyone here my reply was that depends upon what you consider reform to consist in if you mean to ask if we take women here badly born worse raised with inherited habitual vagrant crime in their natures with the grog shop and the brothel for their teachers who never lived a decent day or knew a decent night filthy inside and out and that by a residence of a few months here we are able to send them out to you not only good well-behaved industrious cleanly sober orderly honest respectable members of society something they never were before infallible proof against all the temptations and vices which you of the free community on the outside may throw in their path so they shall never fall again then no we reform no one and our prison is a failure but if reform may mean that the habits which must incidentally grow up in the minds characters and tastes of these women during a term of two years of sober industrious and instructed life in which they shall see only cleanliness and order where the workroom shall replace the street the quiet cell the schoolroom and the chapel in the place of the grog shop and the brothel kindly spoken words of advice prayer praise and song in the place of oaths and vulgarity and a resolution at least to try to lead a better life if all this may be accounted in the direction of reform then yes a thousand times yes we reform all that come within our reach 
the prison in itself is all well but the danger lies beyond in the temptations the lures and the traps of the community into which this poor weak creature is plunged in her first hour of regained liberty i never saw one of these women go out with her little bundle of freedom suit and watch the eager yet timid and half-frightened look on her face and felt the childlike clinging grasp upon mine and heard the universal good-bye don't forget me that through the tears a great prayer did not rise up in my heart o oh god strengthen her weakness guard her from the temptations and the snares leading her down to death of thy virtuous and free outside these prison walls i recall once an official visit from about twenty members of the state legislature at boston for the purpose of overlooking the prison and seeing what it might need and how it could be best officially served accordingly they appealed to me for my opinion generally if the prison were what it should be in its appointments if it were large enough or too large etc and in a general way what i would recommend to them to do as by recent act they had made me not only superintendent but treasurer and steward as well i replied this prison is all very well a model prison and certainly as large as it ought to be for the size of the state and it is very probable that there is not very much that you can directly do for it at present as an institution but gentlemen the institution from which you come has the making of the laws by which this institution exists any time when you there will find a way to make it impossible for the people of this state to get intoxicating liquors upon which to get drunk I will guarantee that in six months the state of Massachusetts may rent Sherborne for a shoe manufactory. I am not sure that they believed what I said, but I did, and still do. True, crime will exist without drunkenness, but to no such extent as to require two miles of prison galleries for the women of Massachusetts. In this country, I regard drunkenness as the great father of crime, and the mother of prisons, almshouses, asylums, and workhouses, the parent of vice and want, and the instigator of murder. Whatever bears ever so little against this is, to my mind, prison reform. Then follow, in their mournful train, the sin-bound cortege of primal and secondary causes of vice and crime, and which make necessary the various methods of treatment which have been so ably discovered that no words of mine could throw a single ray of added light upon the subject. I can only concur or perhaps express suggestively some preferences which may have presented themselves to me. In regard to intermediate sentences, I may not be sufficiently clear upon the technical points as presented by our good brother, 
but in a general way I would say I am unequivocally in favor of an unfixed term of imprisonment when a sentence is given. A fixed time of release is an independence to the prisoner beyond the power of his keepers and stands directly in the way of all reform. I would earnestly advocate everywhere, in all prisons, police stations, houses of detention, in short everywhere, the placing of arrested women and women prisoners in charge of women only, and men in charge of men. It is just and right for every reason of virtue and decency. Here again, it is largely this contact that has destroyed. It cannot restore. I would, for every consideration of humanity, have the most careful, intelligent, and scientific investigation made in all prisons for any possible tendency to insanity on the part of any prisoner the willful subjection to prison rules and penalties of those from whose benighted souls the light of reason and the power of self-control have been withdrawn is cruelty inexcusable and accursed in the sight of god and man in the name of all mercy single these out and take them to their own place again I would, in the name of humanity, lessen so far as possible the stimulating qualities of the food generally given out in prison, more of grains, vegetables, and fruit, and less of meat. The result of this, I am confident, would be seen in the better temper, more tractable natures, lessened irritability, and happier frame of minds on the part of all convicts i would have the food plentiful but unstimulating and the cooking wholesome the records of the punishments in a prison could not fail in time to demonstrate the beneficial result of this course cannot this thought find somewhere and sometime a little consideration in your deliberations in the name of humanity i suggest it there remains but one subject more which i would name and but a word of that simply the relations and feeling to be maintained between the inmates of a prison and those in charge of them i would recommend not only a uniform kindness and firmness of course on the part of every attendant but a uniform politeness as well like begets like in spite of everything it increases self-respect this they have lost and this they need to have restored so far as may be make punishment as rare as possible but sure and in all instances as light as the case will admit of i regard undue severity of punishment as far more harmful than no correction at all cultivate the love of the convicts by all proper means it is more potent than punishment i believe the record of my last month at sherborne shows not a single punishment among between three and four hundred women 
they grew to feel that the only hurt of their punishment was the pain it gave me when i met them for the last night in the chapel and told them we should not meet again and invited each to come and bid me good-bye the sobs and wails that went out and the tears that went over my hands as i held theirs for the last time were harder for me than all the eight months work i had done among them as i passed down the long corridors and the dark unheard by them at ten o'clock and the low moans and sobs were still going out it was too much to bear i sought my own room sank down cold and shivering with the terrible thought that rushed over me had it not been all wrong was i far enough removed from them surely we must be too near alike if not akin or they would never have clung to me with that pitiful love i went out from the prison walls of sherborne next morning i have never seen a face there since i have never returned and i have no desire to End of chapter 11